0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Heart Podcast. Today, we're talking all about syncope, and I'm joined by Dr. Boone Lim, a consultant cardiologist and the clinical lead for the nationally renowned Imperial Syncope Diagnostic Service, which is based at Hammersmith Hospital in London. We have a great discussion all about the various causes of syncope, how you can take a better history from a patient with suspected syncope, and some management strategies that you can use in your practice. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to spread the word to your colleagues and to leave us a nice review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you enjoy the show. So what I might do, uh, Boone, is just ask you to introduce yourself for the heart audience, uh, who you are and where you work.
1: Uh, Thank you, James. My name is Boone Lim. I am a consultant cardiologist and electrophysiologist and I run the syncope service based at Hammersmith Hospital and Imperial College London in London. I uh, lead the service uh, which is uh, performing tilt table testing and we perform between uh, seven and 800 tilts every year and provide this wide service to uh, patients all across London and beyond.
0: And I really am uh, grateful for you coming on the podcast today. I've seen one of your amazing videos on the bjca website all to do with assessing syncope and i'll put a link to that in the show notes boon but perhaps we can talk off by start off by you explaining how syncope fits into the the wider transient loss of consciousness landscape there's a and also maybe you want to talk about the guidelines which have got some amazing diagrams in from the esc in in 2018.
1: thanks for that james so The ESC guidelines for syncope um, published um, in an open access format is is readily available for all to read. Uh, Like any other guideline, it is quite um, long, but the wonderful thing about this guideline is that it distills a lot of the text into very nice color coded, almost a traffic light system of uh, pathways um, and flow diagrams. So when we think about the specific question you ask, which is how does syncope fit within transient loss of consciousness? I think we think about syncope as one of, the, one of the facets of transient loss of consciousness, but we must remember that when you're presented or assessing a patient who has had a transient loss of consciousness, the first thing to ask is whether or not the patient has had a traumatic event. So a head trauma, such as a concussion, is something that's quite easily ruled out and if it's non-traumatic then you think of the other causes of which syncope is going to be the most dominant cause but the other things to consider are epilepsy psychogenic causes of syncope or pseudosyncope and rarer causes which we don't encounter very often such as subclavin steel syndrome vertebral basilar TIA's, subarachnoid hemorrhages but by far i would say the dominant Uh, majority of patients who present to you either in accident and emergency, or in clinic um, a few days after the event, would be presenting with uh, syncope from uh, a transient loss of consciousness due to reduced blood flow to the brain. And this is most commonly reflex syncope, which we can come on to talk about, but also includes autostatic hypotension. And I guess the most important thing for any of us to rule out would be cardiac syncope, which is typically relating to an event uh, to do with heart rate or structural heart disease, so tachycardia or bradycardia, which leads to syncope.
0: That's a really good introduction. Thank you very much indeed, Boone. And I can see a, another diagram in the same document. And again, I'll put a link to the European Heart Journal guidelines uh, in the show notes where you describe or, or the authors describe four different quadrants of a diagram, as you say, cardiogenic, uh, orthostatic, and reflex. And what else have we got on the left-hand side there? Uh, no, so
1: that's drug-induced autonomic failure. So okay. I'll just speak, speak briefly about the, the diagram.
0: Please do, So yeah. if,
1: if, if, we, if we come down to uh, assessing and establishing that the patient has had uh, syncope, then I think the most important quadrant in this diagram from the European Society of Guidelines uh, for syncope would be cardiac syncope, which is on the right-hand side, or about three o'clock. And this is cardiac syncope where you need to think about excluding arrhythmia, cardiac structural heart disease, such as uh, aortic stenosis, um, and um, with arrhythmia, including bradycardia as well. And this is, uh, I guess, the most important thing to exclude first, because cardiac syncope is a thing that can lead to morbidity and mortality if undiagnosed. We'll come on to diagnosis in a short while. But the the second group, which is, uh, encompasses, I guess, two quadrants of this circle, would be anything that creates the orthostatic hypotension uh, that the... Um, uh, uh, the ability of the body to develop autostatic hypertension. So very simply, we can think of volume depletion. So chronically not drinking or being acutely dehydrated on a warm, hot day, uh, or a tendency to, per- to peripheral venous pooling can be uh, things that may make one uh, lose consciousness, particularly the standing for a long period. And then we come to the, um, the other component of autostatic hypertension, which is mediated by abnormal autonomic innovation. And this could be primary or secondary autonomic failure syndromes, things like Parkinson's or multi-system atrophy. And then as part of this as well, we, got, we have drug-induced uh, autonomic failure uh, syndromes. Now, by and large, the most common uh, group of patients we see with syncope, representing, I would say, 85% of the patients who we see are reflex syncopal patients, and these are when patients have an abnormal or inappropriate reflex, uh, which can be uh, elucidated by a tilt-table test or by the clinical events such as phlebotomy or uh, having seen a horror movie or um, feeling queasy about something or having sometimes stomach cramps that can trigger a very unusual reflex with overexpression of the vagus that leads to either a cardioinhibitory response, i.e. slowing up the heart rate, or a vasodepressor response, i.e. dropping in blood pressure through uh, peripheral vasodilatation. And essentially, that's the circle completed for the, uh, for the, for the syncope causes.
0: And where would you say that uh, that POTS fits in? Uh, And and could you define POTS for me?
1: So uh, POTS is postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. It's a syndrome that is emerging or increasingly emerging, particularly uh, also seen in the post-COVID era, where we have a lot of patients presenting with POTS-like symptoms who may not have POTS. But essentially, um, when patients stand up, Uh, Patients with POTS will feel dizzy, lightheaded, often have uh, palpitations, chest pain, brain fog, shortness of breath. Uh, With a subgroup of patients also having problems with temperature regulation, bowel and gut dysmotility, which is either alternating between constipation or diarrhea, and with a further subset having hypermobility syndrome. And essentially, the way we can think about POTS very simplistically, and I'm not going to go into the detail of the subcategories of POTS, but very simplistically, think of it as uh, patients who uh, are not able to effectively uh, combat the peripheral venous pooling whenever they stand up. The difference between lying and standing, James, is gravity. And when you stand up, if you are a patient with POTS, Gravity pulls blood from the head, from the heart, down into the peripheral circulation. Typically, the huge, large capacitance vessels in both lower limbs, which can take between three and 500 meals each. So imagine if your cardiac output or your circulating volume is five liters. When you stand up, you might drop to four liters because you've had now one liter parked away in the peripheral system. And that uh, then leads to the heart having to work much harder to maintain that cardiac output because the heart is emptied to the tune of something like 20% of the circulating volume. And so the heart's natural response is to maintain that cardiac output, which is a product of stroke volume, which is reduced, and heart rate, which needs to increase. The patient then develops this tachycardia. And to define POTS, we need to see a tachycardia develop greater than 120 beats a minute or a greater than 30 beats per minute rise in heart rate on standing maintained over the next 10 minutes without any blood pressure fall with typical symptoms manifest during this period.
0: Okay, and is that, is, would you define POTS as, as a reflex syncope in that category or in the orthostatic hypotension, or is it, does it not cleanly fit?
1: It doesn't cleanly fit in either category. I would say it fits more with orthostatic intolerance, and if you'd look physiologically at what's happening, uh, again, very simplistically, James, because there are other subtypes of POTS, but I'm going to focus on the majority of the POTS patients that we see, would be to do with autostatic intolerance with a reactive, over-exuberant adrenergic surge to maintain sinus tachycardia. Okay. And, and the interesting thing about POTS is that um, whilst the ex- explanation that I just gave is a very clear uh, and easy-to-understand explanation for tachycardia, the other great constant. ...of symptoms that one might experience, including chest pain, shortness of breath, feeling anxious and almost having a panic attack, I think can be uh, brought in by um, thinking about the autonomic nervous system in overdrive, particularly the stress or flight response. Because when you have so much adrenaline in the system, it's no wonder you have an increased respiration rate, an increased feeling of anxiety... tremulousness and sometimes even chest pain
0: absolutely and and those are symptoms that uh, certainly when I see patients with syncope they're kind of unexpected so it's interesting to hear that you see them a lot with simple should we say simple common or garden uh, syncope these symptoms don't necessarily mean that you have an underlying structural or arrhythmic problem with the heart
1: One of my great bugbears, James, is that the patients who come to see me or to come to have a tilt at the Imperial Syncope Diagnostic Unit based at Hammersmith, they often come after quite a journey, and this is a journey of repeated A&E visits. And when a patient presents to the casualty officer with palpitations, feeling a bit tremulous and anxious... Um, with shortness of breath and chest pain, it's very easy to write this off as a panic attack or an anxiety attack. And that, in my mind, is uh, a very unhelpful thing to say to the patients who genuinely have a problem with regulation of uh, blood pressure and volume control on standing. And, in fact, if you took the alternate view, and which is what I often do, and said to the patient the following script, which is, you have potentially a problem with this regulation of blood pressure and whenever you stand up exactly the script that we talked about before um, and sometimes I go to the website that I created which is called www.stopfainting.com and click on the link why do I faint which contains a very illustrative uh, cartoon with a stepwise clickable uh, bar that shows you what happens to the circulation during times of standing compared to lying down. And what you'll see is that the whole constellation of symptoms can be uh, explained by the reactive adrenaline surge hypothesis. In other words, the patient is not having a primary anxiety attack driving this. You're having a primary low blood pressure attack. That drives the adrenaline as a reaction to the low blood pressure in a compensatory way. But because they don't understand this is occurring, it drives and feels the ongoing symptoms and exacerbates it with hyperventilation, chest pain, palpitations. And so, oftentimes, all that is needed to uh, help those patients is to reassure them that they don't have a life threatening illness, number one. Number two, They don't have a problem psychologically because patients don't like being told that it's all in their head or they're just just anxious. They're anxious for a reason. And the reason is that they have the tendency to pool blood and a simple maneuver such as increasing fluid intake, increasing salt intake where appropriate and where the patient's resting blood pressure is low or low normal, and performing isometric counter-pressure manoeuvres and considering compression stockings are all simple, conservative strategies that can help this patients improve their symptoms by a long way.
0: Brilliant. And let's let's step back a little bit, Boone. Uh, what's the most important uh, aspect of assessing somebody with, with syncope, would you say?
1: So I'm very biased and um, feel very strongly that the top three components of a syncope assessment is history number one, history number two, and history number three. <laughs> and I, I seriously mean this. The num the number of times we, um, we we get referrals from people who are sending patients to via neurologists query epilepsy via a brain. Uh, MRI and a sleep deprived EEG when the first EEG is negative when when which is entirely unnecessary when when in fact the primary diagnosis could have been made in 85 percent of this group of patients with those three things I said history 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 now the second and the fourth and fifth thing I would say which completes the thorough syncope assessment would be a 12 lead ECG And even if you're a generalist or non-cardiologist, look at the automated algorithm on top. It normally gives you a PR interval, QT interval, uh, and it normally says normal sinus rhythm. That's what most of the ECGs that I see say. And actually, even if you're not confident, if you take the history, you see a normal sinus rhythm ECG, even if it's via the automated algorithm, and you do a lying and standing blood pressure, that completes a syncope assessment.
0: And I guess, obviously, an examination as well of the heart to exclude cardiac yes. causes.
1: So, yeah. so the examination of the heart um, uh, is mainly to exclude a cardiac murmur of aortic stenosis. And I'm sorry I didn't mention that, but as part of the physical examination, which is lying and standing blood pressure, put a stethoscope on the chest and listen to the murmur of aortic stenosis. Oftentimes, if the murmur uh, or if aortic stenosis is the cause for syncope, you will see an abnormality on the 12th ECG with left ventricular hypertrophy, and you will detect a sufficient enough murmur.
0: Perfect. And can we talk a little bit more about the history? Um, how do you go about taking it? In, in, the, in your video, you had very specific questions that you tend to ask patients that can often bring out really important features.
1: Okay, so it's a, it's a great question. And one of the challenges in history in the world of general practice is the 10-minute consult. Uh, similarly, in A&E, with a triage-based system with people heaving out of the waiting room, it's also the challenge of a very short consult. And what I would say is, um, the history uh, that the patients would like to tell you is often after the event history, which means they'll tell you what happened when the ambulance came When they were sitting in the ambulance, they vomited, and on the way to the hospital, they went over a bump, and they were in and out of consciousness. Now, that may be uh, very valid for the patient as a uh, clinical uh, tale for them to tell you, but you must focus on what happened immediately before the event. So the three questions, I sometimes close the conversation in advance to get or elucidate these three points to the patient would be what were you doing in the 30 seconds before you lost consciousness and they will start off with the ambulance and i'll stop them and i say no please answer this question in the 30 seconds before you lost consciousness what were you doing what were you feeling how were you behaving where were you standing uh what was the temperature of the room what was the season uh and then once I've got that history, I then go back to the next or the preceding day or six hours before the event. And oftentimes, you then hear things like, I had a tough few weeks, or a tough day at work, Uh, I went out, it was a Friday night, had a few pints, slept late, woke up early because the kids were kicking and screaming. And then uh, my syncope event happened at 10am on the next day. Now, all these pre-event conditions will help you build up a picture of what is the most likely etiology for the syncope. So in in my mind, having a script to try and always focus the patient back to what happened the preceding 30, 30 seconds, the preceding few hours, and then where relevant, oftentimes you can get away without this, but sometimes it's relevant, what happened in the last week because they might have been going through an intense week of illness or just recovering from gastrointestinal disease with diarrhea and vomiting or had a very tough few days at work or with a spousal relationship which was stressful or kids misbehaving. So all these factors are the major factors that uh, will help you decide as to what the syncope etiology is. So as an example, the patient who says, I had syncope when exercising, uh, may immediately get you to think of a red flag, right? Mm. But if you say, wait, wait, I don't, please tell me more. And they said, well, I was playing this 16 uh, year old girl, uh, which is a girl I saw yesterday, said, I was playing netball and then I had syncope. And I said, really? You're playing netball? So tell me, were you running for the ball or were you trying to pass the ball and then you lost consciousness? And they said, oh, no, 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 it's not like that. I was playing netball and and during the halftime break for five minutes, I went to the bench, I sat down, and then when I stood up to uh, get back to the third quarter, I felt dizzy, lightheaded, and then I, then I collapsed. So I was playing that ball, then I collapsed. That is a very, very different history from the person who was running on a 10K run and in mid-stride uh, cannot recollect what happened next and woke up with the ambulance around him with a fractured nose. Now that is true exercise induced syncope without prodrome as opposed to the other 16 year old netball exercise syncope where clearly the diagnosis is post exercise reflex syncope or orthostatic intolerance after dehydration playing netball so that those those kind of uh, nuances of the history are there and the detail are very very important to 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 get in the history in order for you to ascertain the etiology.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, in my own practice, I, I uh, initially struggled when I was, uh, you know, starting out. Uh, you, as you say, you would rush to fully investigate that that person because you assumed it was something catastrophically cardiac hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or something. But just some gentle history taking uh, can really help to avoid a lot of unnecessary testing. Um, you mentioned red flags. Are there any other red flags that would definitely push you towards let's say a cardiac cause uh, and start you down a different line of investigation
1: yes so um i think any syncope which is unheralded and that means that uh, doc i was walking down the street and the next thing i knew is people were around me and i didn't know how i fell i think that is a red flag or should be considered a red flag it it, it is not it is a common problem in the elderly population particularly and this is again um, something that i'm beginning to develop more experience in uh, who may have autostatic intolerance or reflex syncope who fall and have a minor concussion and then have a post-syncopal amnesia retrograde amnesia which means they can't remember falling but You know what? Even if you have this group of patients, consider it a red flag because it's always better to investigate anyone with unheralded syncope as if they were uh, having cardiac syncope. So that is one. Number two, injury. So any syncope with injury is a red flag in my books because even if it was vasovagal syncope, it tells you that this patient needs help because they have not been able to take the adequate precautions or uh, respond to their pre-syncopal prodromal symptoms in time and if they don't respond in time then it could, be, uh, the, it could be that they have another episode where they injure themselves during syncope so even if that was vasovagal syncope with a short or minimal prodrome they need to uh, see somebody who can help them lengthen their prodrome typically through conservative advice the, the third red flag is a very prolonged recovery. Reflex syncope leads to almost immediate and instantaneous recovery of time, space and person. So a patient is orientated within 30 to 60 seconds of coming round. Syncope from a cardiac cause may lead to an ITU admission two days later when the patients wake up from the coma. That's very straightforward. But syncope, where a patient wakes up and is not orientated in time space for, say, half an hour or an hour, that makes me think of another event such as an epileptic seizure. And I would then uh, potentially think of that as a red flag, as a non-reflex syncope in that context.
0: And what about the other side of the coin, Boone? Can you talk about the three Ps uh, relating to more benign Uh, episodes of syncope or causes of syncope I should say.
1: Sure I think the traditional uh, driving and licensing authority in the UK have used the three Ps to try and decide whether or not uh, syncope is benign or malignant and the three Ps if uh, you can establish this in your patients typically point to a more benign cause of syncope. First P is posture And this means that the patient feels that the symptoms of dizziness or pre-syncope or indeed have syncope only when they stand up. And this talks about the orthostatic intolerance and blood pooling that I talked about at at the beginning. The second P is provoking factors. So patients with reflex syncope often have um, events that trigger their uh, syncope, such as phlebotomy or micturition or feeling anxious or queasy about an interview or seeing something gory
0: Mm.
1: that is a provoking factor for syncope in some and the third p is a prodromal symptom which is typically uh manifested because of the reflex fright or flight activation and that includes uh, the shortness of breath palpitations feeling sweaty feeling warm, feeling a bit nauseous, feeling lightheaded. These are the three Ps that point towards the diagnosis being a a, a less complicated uh, syncope, which is more benign. And generally, coming back to the driving authorities within the UK, if you present with three Ps and your faint occurred while standing, Um, you are typically allowed to continue driving provided you understand the diagnosis and how to take the measures to combat further events.
0: And before we talk about measures, both conservative and and non-conservative, Boone, can we talk uh, briefly about the use of of tilt testing in your practice in particular?
1: Sure. Um, Tilt testing uh, is uh, a test that uh, lies the patient down on the table And after a five-minute supine uh, measurement uh, with repeated measurements on a non-invasive continuous beat-to-beat blood pressure cuff with heart rate um, recorded on the two-lead ECG, we tilt the patient upright. So after five minutes, the patient is tilted from zero degrees flat to 70 70 degrees upright and held in that um, semi-upright position for 20 minutes. The whole tilt test lasts for 35 minutes. And after 20 minutes, if the patient is not responding or not manifesting any uh, blood pressure or heart rate response, uh, 400 micrograms of sublingual GTN uh, is given to promote vasodilatation. Now, the tilt table test is a very good orthostatic challenge and done in the correct conditions, which is a, a fasting state for four hours and in a room that's not too cold that provokes vasoconstriction, uh, constriction um, and with minimal stimuli, i.e. a dark, quiet room, uh, we can often provoke the patient's symptoms and make a diagnosis of syncope. One of the... Um, conflicts here that you might uh, or that i might just ask on your behalf james is that hang on a minute i just said at the beginning that with history 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 clinical exam and ecg you should be able to make a diagnosis in 85 percent of patients so why do we need a tilt mm. and the and the answer to this question is that not not everyone can make that history uh diagnosis or take the history in that way but number two The tilt, in my uh, experience, and certainly in the group of um, nurses that I've trained at Imperial to do the tilt, becomes a very, very useful therapeutic tool. And this has been um, published on one or two occasions. We are working on Imperial on the therapeutic tilt, but actually will often see and reap the benefits of this for the patients. Because when they attend the tilt and can experience the symptoms of, let's say, shortness of breath or chest pain and presyncope during the tilt, they can then realize fully that they're not about to die. So patients who faint often are afraid of death. Mm. And it it creates this uh, tension and fear that is often not talked about or not even considered and actually is even made worse when they uh, repeatedly attend any and only to be told they're anxious. And that is not a very helpful thing to say because they take it away and then have this, uh, this very, very persistent fear that they're going to die and have a, a, a whole anxiety complex around that. One tilt table test with a very clear physiological or pathophysiological understanding anchored by the diagram on stop fainting, together with displaying the data of blood pressure and heart rate to them, and that that would be step one, i.e. education and understanding, followed by step two, which is the um, communication of the conservative strategies to help them mitigate the risk of syncope uh, makes it uh, therefore very worthwhile for that patient to attend because they come out of there fully understanding why they faint and what they can do to get their lives back.
0: And can and you talk a little bit about some of those conservative treatments? Ben?
1: Sure. So um, the, the first thing to say to your patients is that uh, fluid and hydration are key. Not only drinking two and a half to three liters a day, but front-loading the drinking we are, uh, after all, um, people who uh, work typically in the morning hours, unless you're a shift uh, worker, the, the daytime hours. And so it is important that by breakfast, in my opinion, we should already have had our first liter of water, by lunchtime our second liter, and then the third liter or the third 500 mils can happen uh, before dinner time. We may not need to drink very much after dinner time, 7, 8 p.m., because we don't want to wake up at night to pee. And this kind of front-loaded fluid intake will help to bolster your filling throughout the time that you need to be upright working. Now, the second thing that goes with that, and here I'd like you to just check that your patients don't have hypertension, and majority of the patients who Uh, attend with reflex syncope or autostatic intolerance, do not have hypertension. These patients should be encouraged to have more salt. How much salt? Six to 10 grams. How much is that? One to two teaspoons. What kind of salt? Ideally, a more complex salt rather than the white processed stuff in the bottom shelf of the supermarket, something like Himalayan pink ground salt or some other complex salts. Or what I found some patients taking uh, to be very helpful, which is easier to take than salt, would be some effervescent tablets that contain isotonic solutions. The thing that marathon runners train with, for example, Mm. noon, N-U-U-N, or O-R-S. Just Google oral rehydration salts for training or for sports. And um, that's something that can be very, very easily introduced in your routine, particularly the morning and the lunchtime routine. And for those patients who like to train, despite the diagnosis, I would always urge to top up 10 to 15 minutes before you go for your run or your netball game, have one of those tablets in 500 mils of water, and then train. So hydration, salts, the third component is being aware of how helpful your second heart can, can work for you. So the second heart is your uh, leg muscles or calves. And if you learn to squeeze those calves and squeeze the quadriceps and the gluteal or buttock muscles, what you might learn to do is push up the blood that is starting to pull. Right now, James, I'm sitting down whilst doing this talk. I can, whilst I'm sitting without anyone knowing, start to squeeze and I'm squeezing and tensing my calves, my quads, my buttocks. And if I do this squeezing, let's say, and I hold it for 10 or 20 seconds before I stand up and I maintain that pressure into the stand, I will have less of the peripheral venous pooling that occurs to give me the head rush or symptoms when I stand up. This is what the um, Queen's Guard, for example, which are standing on a hot summer's parade, are trained to do. They're trained to wiggle their toes and pull the toes up towards the sky. In doing so, you can try it now, you feel the back of your calf tense, and that often is enough to shift the blood back up from your lower limbs to your upper limbs. Uh, so that's three steps. Fourth step is consider compression stockings, which could be grade two compression, which should be above knee to the thigh or to the um, to the waist, uh, and then the fourth and fifth. Something that I would always advise people uh, is that imagine that syncope, if it's very prevalent in your life, is a fright or flight uh, response. In that, before you have syncope, you you tend to have an adrenaline surge. So, maintaining a calm state of being through breathing exercise or meditation practice or mindfulness practice can also be very helpful in dialing down that adrenaline response.
0: Brilliant, absolutely amazing, actionable insights there, Boone. And finally, if, if patients do fail those conservative measures, they, they have a diagnosis of reflex syncope made, they, they do the things you say, but they're still having the occasional episode. There are medications that you sometimes use. Can you, can you talk about those?
1: Sure. These are quite rare uh, that I prescribe this. But when a patient has done all of the five things we described previously and they're still getting uh, frequent symptoms which are debilitating, then the two drugs uh, that I consider would be fludrocortisone, which is a mineralocorticoid, and effectively it promotes reabsorption of sodium, to hang on to that sodium and with it fluid within the intravascular circulation. And if I start, I normally don't start at the low dose. I normally start at 200 micrograms once a day. And um, bear in mind that it is a weak steroid. It's not a cortical steroid, but it has some effect. And so it's not a drug that I would wish anyone to be on for more than 12 or 18 months. Now, the other drug to consider would be midodrine, And this is a peripheral and splanchnic alpha agonist. So it's a direct uh, sympathetic stimulant to promote vasoconstriction of the peripheral and splanchnic uh, vessels to improve blood return to the heart and improve blood pressure. And those would be the two agents that I would typically use as first-line therapy for patients who still have symptoms
0: brilliant well thank you so much indeed uh, boone i think we'll have to stop there but um i'd be grateful if you would consider coming back for for part two maybe we can delve more into the use of uh investigation of cardiac syncope pacing adjmaline, all that kind of stuff that would be brilliant to get your insights into that
1: it would be a pleasure james thank you very much for asking me to speak thank you <music>